0: Welcome to Night Sky Tourist, a place to learn the night sky, have fun with its ancient stories, meet astronomers and dark sky advocates, and fall in love with the dark. I'm Vicki Dirksen, your host and author of the website and blog, NightSkyTourist.com. If you've never visited the website, I invite you to stop by after the podcast. Check out some of the great blog articles, browse through the resource page, and sign up for the newsletters. The newsletters have great content that is exclusive for subscribers. Are you ready for an adventure under the night sky? Let's jump right in. The night sky has been a source of inspiration for all of human history. It's inspired storytelling and art and music navigation, and scientific discovery. Sky watching was often ritualized, proving to us just how important it was for the ancient cultures to track the movements of the cosmos. And it wasn't just at night. The daytime was important too. The position of the sunrise and the sunset on the horizon indicated the seasons, And combined with the positions of the constellations or specific stars, ancient cultures knew when it was time to plant or harvest their crops, when to expect seasonal rains and flooding, and when to prepare for winter. And the moon was also used in a variety of ways to mark time for festivals and ceremonies. I often refer to all of this as our night sky heritage, even if it also refers to tracking the sun. It all played such an important role in organizing communities and society as a whole. I recently traveled to Camp Verde, Arizona for a presentation by Kenneth Zoll. He spoke about his years of researching the petroglyphs at the V. Bar V. Ranch site. And one of his discoveries was a rock art panel that was used as a calendar by the original inhabitants of the area. It's a beautiful example of the importance placed on skywatching. I first visited this site in 2019. I had read Ken's book titled Sinagua Sun Watchers prior to my visit. And even though I had seen pictures of these rock art panels, I was stunned when I rounded the corner on the trail and I saw how large they were. I'm thrilled to finally have Ken as a guest on this podcast to talk about these spectacular examples of ancient sky watching. Ken is the treasurer and executive director emeritus of the Verde Valley Archaeology Center in Camp Verde, Arizona. He's also a volunteer docent at the cultural heritage sites in the Coconino National Forest. He's conducted extensive fieldwork in ancient astronomy of the Southwest, and he's a certified instructor in archaeoastronomy fieldwork with the Arizona Archaeological Society. Please join me in welcoming to the podcast Kenneth Zoll. Thank you for joining us on the Night Sky Tours podcast. I am really thrilled to talk about your area of expertise.
1: Um, it's a pleasure to be with you.
0: So you actually have a lot of knowledge about petroglyphs, particularly in the area of central Arizona, of the people that have been known to us for some time as the Sinagua. So can you start off by telling us who were the Sinagua? um where's their ancestral and modern day lands and do we know what they call themselves
1: sure well first of all the the, the term Sinagua or Sinagua, depending on where you're from uh it basically is a spanish word meaning without water sin agua and when the spaniards first came out here uh in the 1580s uh, they saw the ruins and unlike in spain they didn't see the ruins or castles along waterways or along lakes, so they called the people, they called them the people without water. And so then in the 1900s, late 1900s, when they were uh, starting to look uh, at the ruins here, archaeologists, anthropologists went through the Spanish records, saw that they referred to the people as the people without water, and they just grabbed the term Sinagua to refer to the people. Uh, it started in northern Arizona, uh, referring to the people up there, and then when they came down to the Sedona Verde Valley area, they saw similarities in, in architecture and, and uh, rock art and burial practices. And so they decided, oh, these must be a branch of them. So we'll call these people the Southern Sanawa and we'll rename the Flagstaff people the Northern Tsunawa. Uh, neither term is, is appreciated by the Hopi. Uh, the Sanawa are generally recognized as the ancestors uh, of the Hopi tribe. Hope Hopi do not like that word, Sanawa, because it's the Spanish word referring to their ancestors. Uh, it's just like years ago in the Four Corners area, people used to refer to the people up there as the Anasazi, uh, and they hated that because that is a Navajo word referring to their ancestors, so they didn't like that. So that eventually got uh, changed to uh, Ancestral Puebloan is the term we use for the Four Corners area. And down here in the Sedona Verde Valley area, Uh, The the, uh, Hopi tribe, who are on our advisory council at the Archaeology Museum, uh, requested that we use the term Hisatsanom, which is a Hopi word for the ancient ones. So they're much more comfortable with with that particular term. Uh, Where did they come from? Uh, It's generally agreed that they came up from Central America. Uh, There's a lot of rock art down there. There's a lot of other images that they brought up here with them. Uh, For example... If we just take one Hopi clan, the Potke clan, or the water clan of the Hopi, uh, their totem or spirit guide is the turtle, or tortoise, actually, uh, a water tortoise. And you'd say, well, there's no such thing in Arizona. Well, they came from the west coast of Mexico and they carried their totem with them as they came up here. Um, And so uh, what do they call the people, what do they call themselves? We have no idea. Uh, They probably just refer to themselves as the people. Uh, Pretty much they arrived uh, as a culture, recognizable culture, around 650 AD into the area here. And uh, by 1450, they had abandoned the area for the most part, and most of whom went up to Hopi and became part of the existing Hopi culture. Uh, A few stayed around. They intermarried with the Yavapai, who were already in here, Uh, and uh, eventually the Sanawa, who intermarried with the Yavapai adopted the Yavapai way of life of hunter hunter gathering and did not build big, big uh, dwellings at all they were more into uh, earth based ups. Uh,
0: for people who are not familiar with Arizona who might live somewhere else describe to us the petroglyphs we're going to talk about in this episode describe to us what part of Arizona they're that they're in um you mentioned Sedona i think a lot of people Even if they don't know where where Sedona is on the map, they've probably heard of it.
1: Sure. Well, the petroglyphs are are basically uh, everywhere. They're in Colorado, Utah, New Mexico, Southern California, down into the uh, uh, Mayan area, Central America. So petroglyphs are everywhere. Petroglyphs are basically when they uh, would make rock art. Some people prefer the term rock art. Uh, It is when they uh, carve them on a a rock, uh, on a wall. Uh, they're literally chipping away and, and creating an image uh, on a hard surface. Uh, that's opposed to pictographs, which are painted images, uh, and they could paint that on the same rock surfaces or, or other, uh, other locations. But uh, the petroglyphs that I'll be talking about basically are uh, basically the rock art where they carved into the rock surface and they, they take away the surface color, revealing the under color. So in uh, the Sedona area, we have a lot of red rocks here, but the red rocks are covered in a desert varnish, which is actually a form of bacteria. And so when they scrape away this black desert varnish, it reveals the red uh, color of the sandstone underneath. And so they pop out um, pretty pretty vividly. Uh, But over time, as they get older and older, the desert varnish, the bacteria starts to reclaim the images. So one way we can date them relatively one to another is how dark they are. So, as the uh, desert varnish starts to reclaim it, the image gets darker and darker and darker to the point where it's almost uh, unrecognizable unless you have a nice shadow uh, running up against the image. Um, so, that's a petroglyph. And the area that I study um, actually is uh, central Arizona. Uh, Sedona is kind of the northern end of it, Camp Verde is the southern end, Cottonwood is the uh, western end. And the eastern end is basically the Mogollon Rim, which is the plateau of the uh, Colorado Plateau, the edge of the Colorado Plateau.
0: So you have actually found some astronomical purposes for some of these petroglyphs. Um, my my interaction with it was when I visited what was called the V-Bar V-Ranch site. And I I believe that it, it's it has a different name now, but tell us a little bit about finding the astronomical meanings in some of these.
1: Sure. Well, the, uh, you were visiting the V-Bar V, which is a cattle brand, a V with a bar and a V under it, uh cattle ranch. Uh, the Hopi uh, have asked the Forest Service to rename the site the Crane Petroglyph site because the p- most prominent image is our cranes, our herons, and uh, the Hopi are not happy Uh, with the name V bar V, uh, because you come to see the petroglyphs, you come to see uh, Hopi ancestral uh, activity. And so uh, they don't like the fact that it's being referred to with a uh, a ranch name, which to them is is a kind of a slap in the face of ancestral land being taken away from them.
0: Absolutely. And that's 100% understandable as well. Yeah.
1: So, so they say they will visit it more often if the name is changed. And the Forest Service has agreed to change it, but it's a long involved process. It could be two years before it's officially changed and signs are made and modified, et cetera. So, um, so that's the first place I started. I moved to Sedona in 2005 from Chicago and uh, started as a volunteer docent or guide at the site. Uh, but my hobby was astronomy back in Chicago low, uh, at um, Adela Planetarium and, and other places. And uh, so my intent was to get a telescope and start looking at dark skies and um, about five months into moving out here, I volunteered over at the site and um, people kept asking about these particular images that look like to some bullseyes. It's like three concentric circles with a dot in the center. And people kept asking about them and that wasn't covered in training. So I read up on my own on, about those and they are often referred to as Sunfather father images often used in calendar making. And I thought, oh, this would be kind of cool if there was a calendar here. And so we started watching it, and sure enough, within uh, about six weeks, we saw the first evidence of uh, perhaps uh, a calendar. And it's basically uh, there are rocks sticking out, uh, protruding from the cliff face, and as the sun crests the bluff, it hits those rocks, and the rocks throw shadows down across all of the rock art images. And uh, basically it acts like a pendulum. So when uh, winter solstice is at the lowest point, uh, the southern point of the sky, it throws these uh, shadows almost uh, perpendicular straight across the image. But as the sun gets higher in the sky, they that those uh, shadow lines move across the panel. Uh, and so basically it's like six months going down the panel and then six months going back up the panel. And as you're watching these shadow lines going across Uh, literally uh, about uh, 300 images on this one panel. Uh, We've identified seven uh, father-son concentric circle images that are involved uh, telling the equinox, winter solstice, summer solstice. Uh, And also there are three corn plants that will identify the time of the early corn planting the third week of April, the full crop third week of May and the late crop the third week of June. And then there are actually dancing figures that identify the summer solstice. Uh, and so this whole panel uh, provides uh, not only time, but uh, time for planting of corn, uh, various ceremonies. And it even has a, an image at the very top that predicts how much time they have before the summer monsoons arrive. Mm-hmm. And if they don't get their plants rooted in time, uh, the monsoons could literally wash everything away. So uh, the, the, the calendar is pretty sophisticated. Uh, in the field of archaeoastronomy, there are recognized uh, seven levels of the sophistication of, of prehistoric cultures. Uh, one is basically you recognize that the sun r- uh, rises in the east and sets in the west. But number seven is when they actually manipulate something, almost like creating a sundial. Uh, and that's the most uh, uh, high high skill, highest skill level uh, for these people. And the people, uh, the Sanawa in the central Arizona area, clearly were number seven. Uh, we have uh, discovered 12 calendar sites. Uh, using rock art and shadows, and several of them, uh, three to be exact, uh, they manipulated the landscape to create the shadows uh, as as they wanted them. So in effect, creating sundials. Um, And so that's pretty much what what I've been doing is running around and doing that. But um, to me, the most exciting part is finding the sun watcher seat because they they needed to watch the horizon to decide whether it was a summer solstice, winter solstice, equinox or whatever. And when they're watching the horizon along the mountain range, uh, they can see the extreme to the north, extreme to the south, the midpoint for equinox and different valleys and peaks along that horizon could tell them times for planting different things. And so um, the way we know that they uh, knew when the equinox or solstices were to create the rock art, they had to start by watching the horizon. And so um, I, I seek out uh, sun watcher seats that where I can prove that in fact, they sat someplace for perhaps hundreds of years uh, before they got the idea of the rock art and would tell people the time for planting and ceremonies just by watching the horizon. So uh, I have found three sun watcher seats and I've been able to prove that because uh, uh, not only do we, do we mark the declination of, of the sun at those three times, uh, solstices and equinox, and then we hike to those locations. And sure enough, there are usually shrines uh, created at those uh, uh, declinations that pro- really proves that they were watching the horizon from, from that particular point.
0: Are people allowed to go to those seat sites or are they protected?
1: Well, everything is on the forest, okay? So technically, uh, it's public lands. Technically, anybody can go to them, uh, but it's not on a map anywhere. You're not going to be able to just walk up up to these, so uh, you need to be guided uh, to get to them. Occasionally, uh, the archaeology center, since we are the... um, Uh, and museum. Since we are the nonprofit partner of the National Park Service, and we also do uh, contract work with the Prescott National Forest, the Coconino National Forest, uh, occasionally we will take members on hikes to some of these locations, but uh, not too often. uh, They prefer that we uh, kind of protect them, Mm -hmm. Uh, so we don't do a lot of uh, hiking to these spots.
0: Yeah, well sign me up. (laughs) (laughs) This is the thing, like, You know, you look at these ancient cultures and it was so vitally important for them to mark the solstices and to mark the equinoxes. And, you know, today I think about how, especially with social media, it's such a big thing, you know, oh, happy first day of spring, happy first day of summer. But we don't really connect it to much other than just a change of seasons. You know, the weather is changing. But this was so vital for them, for their way of life, for their uh, survival and their livelihood. And so I just, I always find this stuff so fascinating.
1: Uh, I actually was uh, rather moved. Uh, Two years ago, I was giving a talk about the calendars and a Native American came up to me afterwards and he was a Canadian Cree. And he said that uh, his father was the chief uh, of the village back in Canada. And his father had been lamenting uh, on his last visit that the people had lost their way going into alcoholism and other problems uh, because they had lost the old ways of following the sun and doing things traditionally way. And this son came up to me and he says, I've got your book here. I'm going to take it and teach my father how to do the old ways again. Um. And that was Pretty moving to me that he was going to take my book that talks about how they used to in the ages follow the sun and they had lost that and he was going to try to recapture that again so
0: I think that's one of the benefits that we have here in the southwest is that with our climate a lot of these places that were built um, have survived because it's dry (laughs) and we don't have storms and snow washing everything away so much Um, And so it's, it's amazing that we've been able to preserve that kind of stuff. So, so yeah, so you've talked about sun watchers. So sky watching in general, how do you think that that kind of played out in, in their culture, like in their clans or their villages?
1: Well, there was a, they uh, generally they had a clan uh, in, in the case of the Hopi, generally the Potke or water clan, uh, their role was to be the sun watchers or the calendar creators. Uh, and so um, when clans arrived at the foot of the Hopi Mesas, in order for them to be to be allowed to come to the top of the mesa and set up a village or whatever, they had to show what they could contribute to the society as a whole. And this one clan said, well, we do the sun watching, the calendar making. And so uh, six of the calendars that we found in the Verde Valley uh, have their symbol, which is a uh, horned lizard. Uh, in rock art or in, in, in pictograph or petroglyphs to kind of show that my clan, clan made this. Uh, and the Sun Watchers were uh, and the calendars were, were obviously very important, as you said, not only for planting. Uh, you can't go by uh, when does a tree bud or when does a crocus f- come up out of the ground. That's not gonna tell you it's time to plant because the weather could change, be extra warm or extra cold. The only thing that's totally predictable in a very unpredictable world is the sun. You know, you know where it's gonna rise every day, you know where it's gonna set every day, and you can follow it across the horizon to tell your time, time of the year. So it was a very, very important uh, thing. They didn't have obviously watches or anything like that. So the sun watcher was pretty important, sometimes called sun priests, and uh, and they were the keepers of the of the sun sun's knowledge, and sometimes the moon uh, as well. Uh, I know one of the questions you had asked me earlier about uh, uh, Skylore uh, or the stars, Central Arizona, they didn't do a lot of sky watching because you have big horizons uh, to do your sun watching. Uh, The sky and and constellations, planets, etc., are much more in the in the uh, uh, area of the Navajo. I mean, the Navajo are a big open plains area. They don't have very distinctive horizons, and so they were masters of reading constellations and star passings and planet passings. Uh, Whereas the uh, Hopi or the Central Arizona people, the only ones they really followed was the Pleiades, uh, the Milky Way, and the Big Dipper. Those are really the only three constellations or features uh, in the night sky that uh, there's any kind of lore attached to. Uh, There's a rock art image at V-Bar-V that uh, everybody has a different interpretation for. Uh, some say it looks like a beehive, some say it looks like the uh, side of a diamondback rattlesnake. But I hope he came one time to the site and was talking to me and he says, uh, no, 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 that's the Milky Way. And we believe when we die, we become a star in the Milky Way. And then when you look back at that image, uh, there are little dots uh, everywhere where the triangles intersect. And so are those actually stars representing somebody that passed on? So, um not a lot of night sky lore uh, as far as the uh, central Arizona people are concerned.
0: So you did mention the moon just a little bit ago. Um, do we have any anything of them like tracking the moon? Because I know that, you know, for the most part, people are going to use those as, as months. But what do you have with that? Anything?
1: Well, there's nothing um, no one has found anywhere in the southwest Um uh, a moon tracking calendar. Uh, One or two have suggested it, but uh, it's it's very skeptical whether that is true or not. And partly because the moon is very difficult to track. Um, Some prehistoric cultures or actually uh, Paleolithic cultures in in Ireland and England would track the moon. But uh, here we don't see that as much. Uh, They would just have to look up. So uh, the moon is primarily used uh, for female ceremonies. Uh, The sun is used by the male uh, plans to determine their time for planting or ceremonies, but the f- uh, females would use the moon. And so it might be like the first moon after an equinox or the first crescent moon after this event, whatever. And so uh, there is one corner at the petroglyph site, the B Barbie uh, crane site, where there are uh, the predominant uh, features there are female imagery, but it's in a corner of the site that the sun never touches. And so we're suspicious that that corner might be where the women did their ceremonies or uh, did some of their teachings there because the sun never touched that corner. Uh, so moon moon watching, uh, the Hopi actually have a name for every one of the, the 12 or 13 moons in the year. Uh, so they all have ceremonies associated with them, but mostly female ceremonies.
0: I wish so much that we had some kind of connection to this kind of stuff. That's <laughs> It would be, it would be add so much richness to our lives. I think.
1: Well, you'd be much more conscious of, of the environment you're living in. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, it's just too simple now to look up a calendar or look at your phone or look at your iPad to tell you, uh, the time of the day or the season or whatever. And, uh, they, they needed, uh, they needed something, uh, some sites, for example, um, like in the Verde Valley, I'm up to 12 calendar sites. There's probably another 12 or 14 that we haven't gotten to yet. And people would say, well, why do they need so many? Well, number one, they these are all separate villages. And usually wherever you find a village or a dwelling that had significant agricultural fields around it, there was a sun watcher there. And so uh, they were not going to go running, uh, you know, three hours to the next village to figure out what time of the year it is. So uh, that's why there are so many out here.
0: So um, we've talked about what was the vbarv v site, um, which is being renamed, as a place that people can go to see the petroglyphs? Are there any other sites in the area that you would recommend, or primarily this one?
1: Well, the vbarv v site is the largest petroglyph site in the Verde Valley. So, And the one site, uh, when you get there, is 1,032 images uh, on this very small panel. Um, and they're all very, very little overlapping. They're very careful to, uh, when they created them, to separate them. Um, so that if you want to see petroglyphs, the carved types of rock art, that's where you go. Uh, the painted images are up at Palaki uh, Heritage Site or the Honaki Heritage Site, which is uh, northwest of Sedona, but easily uh, uh, reached. Uh, there are at uh, Honaki over 2,000 painted images. Palaki, there's about 1,500 or so. Um, So if you want to see painted rock art, you go up there. And that's one of the weird things here in the Ruddy Valley. 80% of the rock art north or west of the Oak Creek uh, are painted pictographs. And 80% of the images south or east of Oak Creek are petroglyphs or carved images. Uh, When they did analysis of the images themselves, there was no significant statistical difference between them. So just as many deer-like and painted and just as many as uh, and carved. So we have no idea why the choice of medium uh, changed or was, was. Uh, why Oak Creek was the defining line there. But yeah, Oak uh, pick painted images. You need to go north of Sedona and uh, uh, the rock art images, the petroglyphs, need to go south of Sedona.
0: You've also written books about these places. So share with us real quick uh, the books that you've written and how people can find them.
1: Well, they're all on Amazon. Um, and, uh, 100% all profits from my books go to the Verde Valley archeology span center and museum. I've never made a, a nickel off any of these books. Uh, they publish them, they print them, they sell them, uh, at the museum. But if you buy them from Amazon, they get a little cut from that as well. And so they're all on there. Uh, you have to use my full first name, Kenneth, uh, Z-O-L-L. For some reason you type Ken and, uh, you get a bunch of medical supply stuff show up. So, so you have to do Kenneth. But I have, uh, uh, the Sanawa Sun Watchers is a uh, big involved multi-year study of the uh, calendar at V Bar The Heart of the Sky book is of the 12 sites. Uh, I also have a chapter on meteorites found within prehistoric ruins here. Um, and uh, there's actually about six or seven books out there on rock art and other other things, but they're all uh, all on Amazon.
0: That's fantastic. And I have a couple of your books and uh, I'm I'm one of those people who uh, loves to just go tuck myself away somewhere and dig into it. And you've got pictures in there so that we're not trying to guess about what you're you're talking about. And they're fantastic. Mm -hmm. Thank you for writing them.
1: Oh, my pleasure. My pleasure.
0: Well, Ken, thank you for joining us on the Night Sky Tours podcast. And I will have links to all these places and your books and the Verde Valley Archaeological Center in the show notes. So people can just go there and click on them and take take them right to you.
1: That's great. Thank you.
0: Do you wish you knew when to see your favorite planet in the night sky? Want to plan an outing around a meteor shower? Wondering when the next full moon is coming so you can plan a fun nighttime walk with your family or friends? You don't have to remain in the dark any longer because I've created a beautiful month-by-month guide to the night sky. Learn more about featured constellations each month. Learn some fun facts and lore about the moon and so much more. The best part? It's free. That's right. Sign up for the free download and I will immediately send it to your inbox. The guide is called Things to See in the Night Sky in 2023. You can use it to plan your summer camping trip, invite friends for dinner and stargazing, and plan a relaxing evening with your family under the night sky. Visit NightskyTourist.com and sign up for your free download today. That's NightskyTourist.com. It's time for our night sky tour. Pause the podcast, turn off all the lights, and I'll meet you outside under the stars. It's been a pretty exciting month. People saw a green spiral in the sky one night and later discovered it was fuel emissions from a SpaceX rocket. The Northern Lights have been reaching pretty far south lately, giving people across the Northern Hemisphere some awe-filled nights. International Dark Sky Week ended on Earth Day this year, which got a lot of people outside under the stars. And there was the rapid, unscheduled disassembly of the SpaceX Starship. I have to say, That's the most creative term I have ever heard for an explosion in my life. Our tour across the sky tonight probably won't be that dramatic, but you might see a shooting star or you might spot some satellites speeding overhead. We're coming up on the tail end of Orion's time in the night sky. If you stargaze as soon as it's dark enough to see the stars, you'll be able to spot this famous constellation above the western horizon. Tonight, I'm going to take you to three really bright stars in the night sky. So, if you look north of Orion, you'll see a five sided constellation that's shaped like a house, and it has one really bright star called Capella. This constellation is called Auriga. Capella is the sixth brightest star in the night sky. Can you find it? If not, use a stargazing app. Just make sure that you turn the screen brightness down and you put it in night shift mode. There are a couple of reasons why it is so bright to us. First of all, it's only 42.9 light years away, which is relatively close. If you're looking at Capella right now, that light that's entering your eyes at this moment left that star almost 43 years ago. That means you're looking back in time 43 years. An interesting fact about Capella is that it's not just one star, but it's a quadruple star system. And of those four stars, two of them are bright yellow stars. And they're each two and a half times the mass of our sun. So that's the second reason that Capella is so bright to us. Capella was mentioned in an Akkadian inscription clear back in the 20th century BCE, over 6,000 years ago. And then later, Bedouin astronomers created constellations that were viewed as groups of animals. Each star represented one animal. So they saw the stars of Auriga as a herd of goats. And this picture was later incorporated into Greek mythology. And then in English literature, Capella is often called the shepherd's star, the shepherd of the goats. In Mexico, Capella was revered by the Zapotec people. Montalban is an ancient civic ceremonial center, and it's in the modern state of Oaxaca in Mexico. And it was built around 275 BCE one of the buildings there is turned a different direction than the rest of the buildings and so when this structure was built a person could stand inside and look out through a doorway on the day that the sun passed directly overhead and they would be able to watch capella rise above the horizon at dawn just before the sunrise and so this makes some archaeologists suspect that the Zapotec had a special association with Capella. All right, let's look at two more bright stars in the area. The first is Procyon, a bright star to the east of Orion. Again, use a stargazing app if you're unsure of the correct star. Procyon is part of the constellation Canis Minor, the little dog. The ancient Babylonians saw Procyon as Nangar, the carpenter. And he helped Marduk, their god, build the celestial sky and put everything in its proper place. Procyon was also important in the mythologies of the Macedonians, the Chinese, the Hawaiians, the Inuit, and in the Arabic-speaking world. And in modern times, Procyon is featured on the flag of Brazil to represent the state of Amazonas. And finally, we'll take a look at the brightest star in the entire night sky, Sirius, which you're going to find south of Procyon. Sirius is part of the constellation Canis Major, or the big dog, giving it its nickname as the Dog Star. Sirius was particularly important to the Egyptians during the hottest part of the summer, Sirius would rise above the eastern horizon at dawn just before the sun rose. And the Egyptians watched for this to happen because it meant that it was the time of the year for the Nile River to flood. And if you remember your history books, we know that this brought the nutrients to their farmland so that they could plant crops and they knew they could survive another year. And since it was so hot at that time of year, they thought that the sun and Sirius a.k.a. the dog star, were combining their heat and making it hot. So they referred to that time of the summer as the dog days of summer. Yep, that phrase is as old as the pyramids. Sirius is a near neighbor to us. It's only 8.6 light years away, and it's coming closer and closer to us. And because of the way the earth wobbles when it spins... Sirius is going to eventually become the Southern Pole Star. Today, the Southern Cross constellation is roughly in the position as our Southern Pole Stars. But in about 64,000 years, it's going to be Sirius in that position. Astronomers have calculated that Sirius will remain the brightest star in the night sky for only another 210,000 years. And then Vega is going to become brighter. And Sirius is a binary star, which means that it orbits a point with another smaller star. But Sirius is twice as big as the sun, but 25 times more luminous than our sun. For the ancient people of the Greek island of Chios, Sirius was an important part of their lives. Their belief was that if it rose clear, it meant that they would have good fortune And if it was misty or faint when it rose, it meant that pestilence was on the way. There were a lot of coins from the 3rd century BCE that have been found on the island, and they featured dogs or stars, which highlights the importance that they placed on Sirius. But while it marked summer for the Greeks, it marked the onset of winter for the Maori of New Zealand in the Southern Hemisphere. For the Polynesians in Hawaii, Sirius marked the culmination of the winter solstice where it was known as the Queen of Heaven. So that wraps up our tour for this episode, but I hope you take some extra time under the stars tonight. You've probably picked out some interesting patterns in the stars or seen some other bright stars that have made you curious, so use your stargazing app to discover more things on your own tonight don't forget to sign up for your free download of my things to see in the night sky in 2023 guide at nightskytourist.com you can also find links for everything that i've talked about in the show notes and find links to find more of kenneth zoll's work at nightskytourist.com slash 64 nightskytourist.com slash 64 Thank you for joining me for another episode of the Night Sky Tourist podcast. If you enjoy the Night Sky Tourist podcast, please show your support by subscribing to it in your podcatcher and leave a written review. Your reviews are really important to me and they help others discover the podcast. Be sure to visit nightskytourist.com for great articles and resources. And while you're there, sign up for the newsletter for exclusive content. We'll see you here again in two weeks. Until then, keep looking up.